This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. This is The Philosopher's Zone. And this week, we're getting into a conversation about philosophy and the terrible bind that we find ourselves in as we proceed with increasing trepidation into what we're now calling the Anthropocene. Very simply put, the reason that we're cooking the planet and undermining the foundations of human civilization comes down to modernity. Consuming and extracting and generally treating the natural world as a resource to serve our ends is not a form of behaviour that we can just think ourselves out of. It's behaviour that's hardwired into the logic of modernity, which means it's hardwired into our self-understanding as modern humans. And we're going to be unpacking all of this with a little help from Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And if you're wondering what on earth an 18th century German idealist might have to say about the practical problems facing 21st century humankind, then, well, stay with us, because it turns out that Hegel is a surprisingly accurate diagnostician of our current predicament. As we're about to hear... The great revolution of the European Enlightenment, as brought to us by the work of such thinkers as Descartes and Kant, was to conceive of human history as something that we ourselves could shape and control. But that notion of freedom came at a cost because it relied on a certain untethering of the idea of human culture from nature. And today we're living all too precariously with the results of that untethering. Well, my guest this week sees Hegel as providing some fascinating and perhaps useful insight into how it all went wrong. Simon Lumsden is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales. The kind of standard model of thinking about freedom which takes place in the the pre-modern conception would be to think of human history as largely constrained by God, by tradition, by a set of natural forces. And that represents the kind of limit by which humans are able to progress in some form. And it's largely structured by these external forces. Now, what Descartes does, and he, in this he's continuous with other figures like, like Bacon, is that he places the capacity for us to determine ourselves in our own hands. So reason becomes the basis by which we're able to transform ourselves, determine ourselves, and look to the future. Now, that, when you sort of move along in the history of philosophy, you get an advancement of that notion in the Kantian account. Now, Kant accepts many things from the Cartesian view, but he also transforms it. And I think one of the things that Kant does and what really gets the idea of the philosophy of history moving forward is that he posits an end towards which human beings are aiming. And that aim is the cosmopolitan ideal, right? We're in the position to be able to control the direction of human history, if we understand where we're going. In his case, if we can reflect upon our rationality, understand ourselves to be rational, see that we're self-determining, then we can work out that the way in which history is progressing is such that the kind of differences which had caused the conflict of human history are able to be eradicated and we end up in this cosmopolitan ideal. And once we can sort of rationally determine where that's going, then we can, by our own ends, posit that end and then move towards it. Now, Hegel takes a very different account of it. He's not concerned with positing an end towards history is aiming. Largely, the Hegelian view of history is to some degree retrospective. It's understanding the 
set of conditions and tensions by which we've landed in the position that we're in in the present. And so then in his case, what he is concerned to understand, if we're specifically concerned with the philosophy of history, it's really understanding why, how is it that we've come to understand ourselves as self-producing and self-determining? What's the set of conditions by which we know that to be the case and, and how that, as it were, moves forward in time? And there's a sort of set of institutional conditions that does that, but we can talk about that in a minute. And but another difference, though, here, if I read it correctly, is that historical progress on the Cartesian model is sort of open-ended. He posits this sort of infinite capacity for self-transformation, whereas for Hegel, there's a limit, right? I think the way you've described it, that's really the ideal of what modernity itself would see itself. So if, if you take that, your description, as it being op- open-ended and has an infinite capacity for self-transformation, that's in a way the kind of standard view of modernity in its own right. I mean, if think about what's going on in modernity. If modernity largely emerges in this period where Bacon and Descartes are writing, and, and what, what's the prompting that? It's as I sort of said earlier that there's a constraint on human freedom and human progress, and that's, you know, God or nature or something else. And in a way, that sort of marks a human vulnerability, that we're vulnerable to something external to us. There's an external authority which is constraining us. Now, the marker of modernity is really that we're in the position in Western modernity to be able to always meet those challenges. There's kind of those vulnerabilities are things that never become absolute and stand over against in a way that is, a, as it were, a permanent limit. So we can always meet those challenges and transform. And that's, in a sense, modernity self-confidence, right? That there's nothing that's really going to restrict its development. And that, I think, marks it. And, and it's a way, and, and uh, I would say it still marks it as the kind of emblematic feature of it in the present. But not for Hegel, though. I mean, Hegel has this idea of second nature, which I find really interesting. And this is where he posits a sort of a potential for decline and decay within modernity itself. Tell me about that. So, yeah. So in Hegel's case, he accepts the basic view of modernity that we're self-determining, that we're self-producing. He thinks that's the kind of historical marker that gets, it's a human achievement that really is developed from you know, Athens that runs through to the modern period. And we become self-conscious of that in the modern period. But at the same time, what animates his thought is really the way in which a shape of life falls apart. So he doesn't have this conception of an unending modernity by which we're able to kind of infinitely and always transform ourselves to meet the present seemingly. He's got a concern with the way in which all forms of life meet, as it were, their their limits, how they are able to, and and that becomes the basis for their transformation. Now, in the case of the kind of standard enlightenment view, the, the, the seat of that transformation is really in rational reflection, right? It's our capacity to see the limits of a norm or a value of a set of concepts which we take to be limiting on a past and we use our rational reflection to overcome them in some form and we might produce a set of institutional relations that that are adequate to that. Now, Hegel has a much more embodied view of these things. I think what he rejects in the Kantian and the standard enlightenment view of progress is a sort of disembodied character of it. And in his case, what he wants to say is that all of our concepts and principles that animate what he would call the shape of life, which is really just a culture, they're all lived. They have a materiality to them. Right? And 
the way in which he sort of thinks of human history is that there's a sort of concept that starts to emerge, something like self-determination, which really gets going and we start to be self-conscious of in the 17th century. And over the course of the next couple of hundred years, it becomes full of life and in the aftermath of the French Revolution, it develops institutions that are more or less adequate to that, which are are dynamic and self-transforming. But all of, in Hegel's case, all of these forms of life, because they're all embodied, they all, as it were, have a connection to a, a sort of natural realm, which he describes as second nature. Now, the thing that's distinctive about that is that the notion of second nature, which is a, a, a notion that has a long history in the history of philosophy, it's a sort of paradoxical notion because it's, as it was, something that we humans will, we create it, but then it becomes something embodied and it becomes, as it were, almost as hardwired in us as causal or first nature so it that means that and this is the kind of classic way of talking about is in as in habits right so habits is the kind of san hegel would think that customs the customs are really just habits at the level of a culture and customs are embodied they're the way we live our culture in in our live our material culture and the problem with all of these habits and customs is because they have this sort of quasi naturalistic function that means they're extraordinarily resistant to change. They become embodied and they want to perpetuate themselves and they just repeat themselves like habits do. And what happens in Hegel's case is that there's this sort of inherent conflict that we experience, which is that we perpetuate customs and culture because they're, as it were, these material forms of practice, which we just reproduce again and again because they're sort of, as it were, bodily and affective. But at the same time, we have this rational reflective aspect of us that he doesn't want to give up, which the Enlightenment gives us, right? And that allows us to sort of recognise that there might be something inadequate about these practices, norms, habits, customs, which are embodied. And at some point, there's a reflective element that comes in, there's, there's something inadequate about those material practices, which we know aren't fit for purpose. And if we think about that in the in the kind of modern context of ecological crisis, for example, we can say that there's a certain set of material practices that we're all overly familiar with in consumer society. We just keep buying stuff and reproducing stuff, and we think that this is a kind of some source of human satisfaction. And there's all of this investment, political, material, economic culture, and wanting us to keep doing it. But at the same time, there's a kind of r- rational, reflective level that knows that there's something that's problematic about that, that that form of practice is not fit for the age that we live in in the present. And that dissonance, that disconnect between this reflective capacity, between knowing the sense that there's something wrong with those practices and the practices themselves is for Hegel, that's what drives history forward. Right. And so, well, I mean, you, you've mentioned their patterns of consumption, and this is where maybe we can talk about how Hegel's thinking on this can help us to understand what's going on at the moment with the climate crisis. We, we've we talked about how modernity or the, the kind of the idea of self-determination that animates modernity can reach its limits, can fall into decay in this way. How do we see all this unfolding today in, in what we're now calling the Anthropocene? Well, Hegel, I would say, would think that modernity, for all its capacity for self-correction, it's still fundamentally governed by a principle which is going to reach its limit. 
And I think for me, the way in which I try and make sense of it is that if self-determination is built on this kind of resource-intensive view of the exploitation of nature, which really gets the whole process of modern culture going in some sense, this transformation, seeing nature as passive, is something we transform. That's how we, as it were, realise human ends is through that transformation. Where we end up with at this point in time is the point at which we know that that form of human self-realisation it itself is one which has both caused the Anthropocene, right? We understand that this capacity to be self-determining, which transforming the world to serve a human end, this is something that we have caused. But we're at the point now where we also know that that form of life animated by self-determination, which is this largely sort of human um, circumscribed domain, it cuts us off from the natural world. And we're isolated from it. And we can see that that's the problem. And I think that's the point where we get this sense of this dissonance between this conception of ourselves as free, as self-determining agents, as largely in control of a kind of set of forces by which we're able to sort of govern ourselves and move ourselves forward. But we also know that that doesn't fit with the natural world and the crisis that we've landed ourselves in. And I think that's the distance we're in at the moment. And that's, I guess, there's so much intellectual interest in trying to make sense of how we resolve that division. And I think Hegel is able to give you a, a good sense of why we, as it were, feel that tension. And the challenge becomes, is modernity up, for the, up to the job, right? Is it able to meet this vulnerability and meet this contradiction between it and this external nature, which it reads the limit of, and transform itself such that it can live with it in a way that doesn't destroy us and it at the same time, right? And that's, I think that's the sort of moment we're in. You're listening this week to Simon Lumsden from the University of New South Wales. He works in the philosophy of history and the environment, and he's right here with me, David Rutledge, in the Philosopher's Zone. Okay, so we're talking about how our modern habits and norms are causing ecological breakdown. And even while we know that these norms are, are no longer fit for purpose, we've become aware of their, their second nature inflexibility, as Hegel might put it. We're still unable to break those habits, to transform them. Why is that? Why is our reason and our understanding inadequate to that challenge? It's a good question. And for me, the second nature explains it because the second nature, as I was saying before, it wants to reproduce itself. There's this kind of materiality of life that just wants to keep doing. And I, and I think it's partly because the way in which second nature functions is it's not just that it's a habit, right? It's not simply a habit. It's that we take that habit to be the way reality is, right? It's also a kind of claim that this is how the world ought to be, right? Because we've been keep doing something in a certain way, this is how we keep, as it were, living this life, which involves this kind of resource-intensive practices. That's the only way in which a meaningful life is able to be achieved. And we want to keep reproducing that. And, and I think in Hegel's case, what he would say is you sort of, you don't recognise what the new form of life is that corrects that flawed view until it arises, this is where it's different from Kant. He can't posit the end towards which we're heading. There's no cosmopolitan ideal towards which we're heading. All philosophy can do is make sense of why the thing, the shape that we're in now is falling apart. 
And, and that's because we've got a form of life, a material practice, which is atrophying, and we've got a rational reflection, which allows us to understand that. Now, what I would say is that the sort of standard view of philosophy would be that, you know, we can resolve this by sort of rational discourse and the world is a sort of philosophy conference writ large. And if you and I, I can recognise, you know, that there's something wrong with my argument and you, David, have pointed that out to me and, you know, hey, presto, we move on to the next and we resolve that and now we've got the solution. And I think Hegel has no, doesn't have a view like that because he understands that culture is embodied, that the complexities by which things transform requires a much more complicated historical process. And I think what he would say is that the seeds for the transformation of this shape of life that we're in, if indeed it's able to transform itself to be able to get, they're already there. They're taking place in the discussions amongst environmentalists and, and possibly some kind of clear thinking aspects of civil society and, and political life. And those, those arguments are being put forward in this culture. And there's a point at which that, as it were, more adequate concept will start to be taken up and get some kind of institutional form. This is on the optimistic view, right, that, in fact, we're able to reconcile ourselves with this contradiction. The alternative is that we just can't and that this fall of life just collapses. It's reached, as it were, its shelf life and it's unable to resolve this animating contradiction and some other completely new form of life will have to come in that can do that. Another thing you've written about recently is how the idea of the Anthropocene supports the argument that we have come to the end of the nature-culture dualism that's been so foundational to Western thought. In fact, you have someone like uh, Bill McKibben who, who wrote that wonderful book, The End of Nature, in, in 1989, and this was before people were talking about the Anthropocene, but that book sets out the argument pretty neatly. What's Bill McKibben saying there about nature and culture? Um, so in McKibben's case, the basic argument is that everything has become contaminated with human practice, right? So we can no longer sustain the idea that there's some nature which is completely independent of us. That, for him, that idea of it is gone, and he's mourning that loss, right, that there's something about climate change, the nature of the kind of resource-intensive practices of human beings that means that that can never be recovered. And for him, the political strategy at some level is how we go about you know, removing as much of that human intervention from that natural space as possible to allow those places to flourish with as minimal human intervention as, as we can. So that means effectively that what, what's happened is if we have this standard vision which comes back from the Enlightenment between culture and nature, so culture and the Enlightenment view it's really the domain that we create for ourselves in which we live our freedom. It's this space that where we live and nature is outside of us and we're determining our values in its sphere. It's not determining us. We're determining it in this space. And in McKibben's case, I think he understands that with the effects of climate change being so pervasive that we can't hold that division anymore. Everything is, has in effect turned into culture. There is no nature in that sense of being completely independent of us anymore. Obviously, he's not talking about nature in terms of the causal, you know, the movement of celestial bodies and so on. Those things are not affected. Though. He's talking about nature in the, in the idea of a kind of sense of a sort of wild space as independent of human beings. And he's seeing evidence of climate change at the top of Mount Everest, microplastics in the deepest parts of the ocean, this kind of thing, the, the, the imprint of, of human hands everywhere. The interesting corollary of that argument is that if nature 
understood as the binary opposite of culture is is over, is gone, then the role of environmentalism becomes complicated because everything becomes understood as, as the built environment in, in some sense. This is You've written about this. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of conceiving of non-human nature in that way as, as cultured landscapes? Because it's, it's not just a sort of – I mean, Bill McKimmon is very pessimistic about that view, but there's a view according to which we can work with that. Is, is that your view? Yeah, look, I think there's, I'm ambivalent about it. We, if we accept McKibben's argument that in a certain degree, and this is obviously something he's resisting, that all landscapes have to be seen as cultured because the human imprint is everywhere upon them, then there's a couple of options for this. One is to say, just embrace that and go that, yes, everything is the built environment, effectively. I mean, even from the depths of the ocean to Antarctica, because they've got human imprint on them, they can't be, as it were, disentangled from that imprint. To some degree, they all, on a spectrum from New York to Antarctica, all bear this kind of human culture. They're all human cultures in a certain sense. Now, the positive aspect of that for me is that it becomes a challenge for environmentalism because the standard view of environmentalism, which is the you know, on display in McKibben's argument, is that what's environmentalism concerned to do? Protect nature. What do they mean by nature? That thing external to us, which is untainted by human hands. Now, there are many admirable features about that idea, but in the context of the Anthropocene, it seems no longer to be a viable view because everything, we can't remove that human hand anymore. It's there. It can't be taken away. And what it does, and I think once you embrace that view at a certain level, um, then it shifts environmentalism in a different direction. So for someone like Stephen Vogel, who writes this important book from 2015, Thinking Like a Mall, he would argue that what does it shifts it from this protection of external nature to thinking about human practices. If we have built this environment such that it's ugly, deformed, damaged, degraded, then we have done it. And we are responsible for it and we need to focus on that. And I think for me, the great strength of that approach is that rather than just seeing environmentalism as concerned with, you know, protecting Antarctica or, you know, the Southwest Forest of Tasmania or something, the environment is everywhere. It's from New York to Antarctica. And in that sense, environmental projects become all of that space. And that's, I think, the great strength of it. The other strength of it that I think that's positive is that this idea of sort of pristine wilderness has a very problematic colonial legacy. That view of wilderness, this is more pronounced, I think, in the American context, but it, it is also something that's on display in the Australian context. People like Marsha Langton have written about this uh, in Australia. That in the Australian context, once we talk about wilderness as a pristine space, independent from human contact, it becomes a new form of colonisation, right? That what that means is that the land management practices of First Nations people, their voice seem to be written out of the story. It's just nature and it has no human imprint upon it. And so the advantage of this approach to environmentalism is that that is not an issue anymore because they're all cultured landscapes, right? Even if the way in which their culture is quite different with First Nations people from, you know, industrialised economies, nevertheless, it's continuous. So that means we have to confront and think through the way in which all landscapes bear a human imprint. 
And I think that's the positive aspect of it. And the negative aspect? I mean, I guess what I'm missing here is, is from this account is something that challenges the anthropocentrism of, of Western modernity. The negative aspect is how you make it a space for nature. Right? Now, nature is a highly contested notion. And right? it's, along with culture, it's probably the most contested concept in, you know, in history of philosophy. And there's you know, innumerable definitions of what it means. Um, but for me, the problem becomes is that once you make all of nature into, as it were, a landscape, a built environment, then the difference that nature has from us appears to be lost. How do we then think about the forces at play in an environment which aren't human, right, with which we engage, which are present? How do we make sense of, of them and their role in that environment? And, and that's, for me, the problem with that approach is how we build that different way of thinking about the non-human within the environment such that its value can be affirmed and its role and its importance affirmed without it just turning into something that we have transformed and something that serves our end. And that, I think that's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, just in passing, the ways in which the cultural imprint of Western modernity on the landscape is different from the imprint of, say, First Nations cultures on on the landscape. And I, I guess a really key difference there is that in First Nations culture, we see these sort of dependencies at work and sort of reciprocal relationships between humans and the non-human world, whereas modernity seems to be very much about sealing ourselves off from all the vulnerabilities that those reciprocal relationships entail. Do you think that what we're going to have to do if we are going to sort of think and then practice our way out of the bind that we're in is going to sort of reintroduce those reciprocal relationships? Like, yes, our culture does affect the landscape, but in some way the landscape has to affect us as well in, in a way that isn't necessarily going to be to our liking. Look, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the challenge becomes how you do that in a way that's not romanticised. And so, you know, the, the standard way of thinking about hunter-gatherer societies in anthropology is that animal life and in the forces of nature more generally, they're, they're co-participants. They're part of human social life and you can't disentangle the two. And the challenge is how we make ourselves understand ourselves in Western modernity as codependent, having these reciprocal relations with non-human elements of the natural of the, of the environment in a way that is able to reconcile ourselves with the self-determining character of modernity, right? And that's the challenge that I think how that can resolve itself is, the, is, is still to play out, if that's possible, because it conflicts with what we take modernity to be. Right? Because modernity is we are self-producing and self-determining. We do this in this human-described space. Nature is there for us to exploit. And once we present nature as co-participants in this in some form, then we have to think about that freedom that has animated us at this point in time in a very different way because um, then we would have to think of nature, non-human animal life and the other aspects of the natural world, as in some sense parts of us as a way of understanding ourselves such that we see ourselves in it, right, rather than we just being in this specific human circumscribed domain. And it's clearly that that's present in many hunter-gatherer societies, that way of thinking about themselves. But that 
you know, that's not just something we can appropriate. And there's problems with that kind of appropriative relationship to it in general. It it's a, would be another form of colonialism. So whatever that relationship to that would have to be, it would have to be something very different to that model. Simon Lumsden, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales, and you can find more information on the Philosopher's Stone website. You can also find download links to all of our past programs, either there or via the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge on Twitter at David P Zone, and I look forward to your company right here in the Philosopher's Zone next week. See you then. <laughs>